But here's where we're going to be going today. If, uh, if you need a Bible, uh, there will be some people coming down, and I'm just going to keep speaking. But if you need one, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, please feel free to keep this one. We'd be more than happy to, to share it with you. But what we've been trying to do as a church, we've been trying to go through the book of Revelation. Now, in some ways, again, when, when people hear about going through the book of Revelation, it either scares them to death or it's one of those things they get too excited. I don't know if you've ever been, met anybody before that's like a little too excited about eschatology. Um, they're the people that think they've got it all figured out. And if you ever run into somebody that thinks they've got eschatology all figured out, just look back at them and just shake your head and say, you really don't. Because there have been much smarter people than them that have tried to get all to the end of different aspects of it. But that doesn't mean we're not supposed to study it and know it and seek to know the truth. So what we did the first week is we kind of laid out this idea, Christian did this, of where we were going. And he tried to set for us kind of a road map, or the way we put it was a box top to a puzzle. That we were going to go through the book of Revelation, not so much down in the details, down in the, in the grass a little bit, down in the trees. But try to, is anybody else getting weird feedback? Or is it just me? If you, yeah, I thought so. I didn't, I felt my, my voice was so powerful. Anyway... But the way that we said, they said we want to go through it is much more at 30,000 feet, mainly just because I think when you stick up here at 30,000 feet, and I'll allow you to go home and study some of the details, I think you see this great picture of the victory of Jesus. That's really what we're trying to get to, is allowing ourselves to see this grand, big, giant picture of Jesus' victory in the end. Now, the second week, we, we encountered Jesus through kind of where John's encounter with him. And the thing we tried to get to is, is that we will never fully understand where God is going until we fully encounter that Jesus that we talked about in chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3, then, we talked about the church and how the church is now supposed to respond to this Jesus who's about ready to be victorious. And then the next week in chapters 4 and 5, then, we went to the throne room of God, if you remember right. We were there, and we saw all the angels around worshiping him. We saw him hold out a scroll, if you remember right. Jesus, the lamb, who also is called the lion, goes up, he grabs the scroll, and in that kind of victorious moment, again, everybody realizes everything's going to be good. Jesus Christ wins, and again, if you've been reading the book of Revelation on with me, you know how this story ends. Jesus wins, right? That's where everything is going towards. Now, last week, what we did is we tried to tackle this idea of, uh, of specifically suffering, and we saw that as Jesus was pulling back, as King Jesus was pulling back each of those seals, those seals were talking a little bit about suffering, but more specifically, the purpose of suffering, that suffering isn't in vain, that God has an intent to it, and there's going to become a final time where everything is going to click together. We're going to understand our suffering was used by God to, to advance his kingdom. It was going to be the means by which now he was going to pull people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into his particular plan. And I, and I even said this last week week, you will never advance the kingdom of God without suffering and difficulty. But the other thing we tried to say, though, is, is that those things that happen to us, our sickness, our cancer, our, our struggles, our, our friends and family and kids and parents that die, all those different things for those of us that are followers of Jesus begin to now make sense finally at that end time, that eventually suffering is going to make sense. Now, here's where we're going to go today, and I'm going to try to answer a question for a lot of people. We said the Lord's Prayer. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, you'll see this little statement that says, your will be done on earth as it is in... Okay, that's our question we're going to try to answer today. 
How in the world does God take his will, what is happening in heaven with everything in perfection, telling him rightly how amazing he is, and how does he bring that will to earth? Now, here's the thing about that, though. Is his will coming to earth, we sometimes say it in nice flowery ways, but you're going to see as we go through these trumpets that for God to bring his will from heaven to earth is a serious endeavor that's also going to include rocking a lot of people's worlds. Now, if you remember last week where we were, is we were, we were walking through chapter 8, and I'm gonna, I forgot to forward here, there we go, in verse 1. And where we finished was, is here's the lamb, and he's now opened the seventh seal. And remember this? It was just quiet. And we finished with the Sunday, and we just said, look, there's a place in which now we have to get to a point where we just shut up, and we are still, and we understand that he is God. That's definitely true, but let me tell you something. Again, as we think about how is Jesus going to, or how is God going to bring his will to earth as is in heaven, is that he's also going to use this term, judgment. Okay, so a lot of times people, when they hear the word judgment, they're like, yeah, this is why I don't like the book of Revelation. But I think it's important to where we're going. Now, there's a place in which silence does mean reverence, but there's another place in Zechariah, and we're going to be in Zechariah a couple different times in this passage. But in other words, now you come into this one and it says, be silent all flesh before the Lord. Now watch this. Why be quiet? For he's roused himself from his holy dwelling. You poked the bear. Now again, if we remember right, there was a prayer of these saints back in chapter 6 saying, God, where are you? God, do you see what's going on? Are you aware of what's happening? And in this moment now, finally, God is roused, and he's about ready to bring his judgment. Now, the way that we see it here is that there's these seven angels that are standing before God, and they're handed seven trumpets. Now, each of these seven trumpets are going to represent how God is going to bring his will to earth as it is in heaven. There's another angel that came and stood, and look at that, with an altar. Look at verse 3, with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints that were referenced back in chapter 6. And the smoke of this, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. And look at this. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there was peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. In other words, God was saying, I am awoken. Now, this doesn't mean that God was asleep, okay? That's not what I'm saying. It was just this roused idea. Here is God. He's going to bring all things to their final conclusion, and here it comes is the idea. Now, if you can imagine for just a second, again, whether or not you believe this event has already took place, it's something that is taking place or will take place. If you spiritualize it, you symbolize it, or you believe it's actually literally going to happen, there's now these seven angels, and they're standing ready, and they're about ready to blow their trumpets, Now, here's the first trumpet you're going to see this in a series of them that's going to come along, is that before God brings his will to earth as it is on heaven, he is going to absolutely pull the thread on everything that we find security, and he is going to rattle our world. Now, here's just something on a personal level. I've not only found this to happen on a cosmic level like we're about to see, but anytime God wants to get our attention, he is not afraid to rattle our world. 
Now, the first thing that happens we see in verse 7 when he comes along, and this is going to see this, this rattling of the world, this coming and now of his will to earth as it is on heaven, is we find this first trumpet blow, and what he goes after with hail, fire, mixed with blood, and they're thrown down on the earth. Look at the end of verse 7. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, if you can just stop for a second, what it would be like suddenly if global warming suddenly kind of came about. In other words, just watching in this brief moment as an entire world suddenly, again, is shattered in this way in which all of our trees, all of the things that we find security in, and we're going to wake up and we're going to see the green grass, we're going to have food, is suddenly just pounded in one moment. See, the first thing he's going to go after, I think, in a lot of ways, is just that concept. I'm going to pull this thread on you. The next thing we see in verses 8 and 9, if he blows it, is there's this mountain that gets thrown down into the sea. And look at this. A third of the sea becomes blood. Now, in some ways, this should conjure up images of what was taking place in those ten plagues back in the book of Exodus. I think this is really the rhythm of it in which God is seeking to speak, and he's trying to get people's attention. Because the moment that it lands in there, verse 9, is a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. In other words, now, not only does he affect what's going on on land, but in other words, he says, I also have control over the sea. Mankind might think we create ships and we can control different things of the sea, but God says, no, I can control all of of those things. Third angel blows his trumpet. A great star falls from heaven. Now again, maybe you're spiritualized this, maybe you're somebody that just sees this as symbolic, but just for a moment, a whole star falling from heaven in some way. And again, we don't know what this exactly means, but it falls on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. And this wormwood is the name of the star, which means things become bitter and people die. So not only is it now we're seeing that God is sitting there rattling our world in regards to the food we eat on land or the food we eat in the sea, now he's coming along and saying, I can even take water away if I want to. He's just rattling it. Verse 12, suddenly he starts to mess with something that we think is always consistent. The sun's always going to come up tomorrow. God says, really? In this brief moment, we find that not only is it the, star, it's the sun, but the stars, the moon, all of life gets affected on how the light hits the earth. In this moment, you would think again, just like the Israelites, right? They, it wasn't really touching them, but the Egyptians, God is going, would you just let my people go? Would you relent? Would you repent? And in a lot of ways, this is what he's doing. He's trying to say, can I get your attention? And by the way, I think all of us sitting in this room right now, there's going to be a temptation from the evil one just to go, blah, 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 boring, boring, boring. And I'm telling you, God, if you remember, right, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is echoing out all over us going, do you hear what I'm saying that's about ready to take place? That's why in verse 13, he says that there is an eagle that comes crying. And it's a crying eagle that says, no, listen to me. Anytime you saw an eagle, it was judgment. And he says, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. In other words, pay attention. There's going to be three things that come along. I'm trying to get you to understand how serious this is and how big this is. Do you hear me? There's going to be other blasts of these trumpets that come after that, that the three angels are about ready to blow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen. And God is just rattling the earth. 
And one of the things I love about this is he's rattling the earth because he's trying to get the earth's attention. I don't know how many of you are like me, but sometimes there's some people that just need to get rattled, and then there's other of us that need to get hit right square between the eyes. And it's almost as if God is saying, in case you don't get me yet, he comes along in Revelation 9, and there's a fifth trumpet that's the first woe. It's, it's this first way that God tries to get a hold of him, is that somehow we can't control our food supply with the plants we have. We, we can't control the sea like we think we can. We, we can't control the water that we take in like we think we can. We, on the fourth level of it, we can't control the sun and the moon and the stars and all those different things. But in the back of our head, we think, okay, I can control my life. I can decide different things about who I am. Science has the answers to fix all the problems. And suddenly he says there's a star that had fallen. It's this one that had already been, probably this wormwood one, from heaven to earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Sounds like a lovely place. He opened it up and the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then the smoke came locusts on earth. And by the way, these probably aren't helicopters, just so you know. Some people are taught that. And they were given power, like the power of scorpions on earth. They were told not to harm the grass, look at this, or the green plant or any tree. But only those people, this sounds just like Exodus, who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings somebody. And those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from it. In other words, they can't even kill themselves. Whoa. Just stop for just a second. Imagine this. Whether you spiritualize this or symbolize this or you're a literalist that believes it's going to happen like I do, God is trying to get our attention. With everything that goes on in this world that we get rattled on. Even this week, like, you know, again, I don't believe God is the author of a guy that goes in and does something stupid in a school. But it's this reminder that left to human's own end, it should just rattle us. It should cause us to realize that there's something in this world that does control all things and we think we can create safety for ourselves and security for ourselves and comfort for ourselves and we try everything that we can to try to do it, especially living in beautiful, sunny Southern California where you wake up and it's 75 degrees with the sun in the sky and pollution and traffic as well, but that's a whole other story. But there's we are in this great world and God says at any moment I could take, I could pull the string and unravel it like that. And every once in a while, we get these little glimpses of what it looks like when our world gets kind of rocked. This is what John is seeing. We think our money is safe. Our kids. Gosh, that's the one price scares me the most. God says, I am God, and you can try to create all the boundaries you want in the world out there. But even when it comes to taking your life, you can't take your life till I decide it's time for you to go. These locusts were like horses. They were prepared for battle, and their heads were what looked like crowns and gold, and their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. Try to figure this one out. 
They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the sound of many chariots. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, which probably, I think, in reference to Satan, his name in the Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destroyer, or Greek Apollyon, which means the same thing, just the idea of destroyer. And then he says, finally the first woe is past, and you would think, okay, good, it's over. And then all of a sudden you read, oh, but there's two more to come. God says, I still don't have your attention yet, do I? Again, he's referencing, how is it that my will is going to be brought to earth as it is in heaven? And he says, in order for this to happen, I'm going to have to rattle your world. Now, verse 13, the sixth trumpet blew. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. In other words, this place in which now God's people worship. And we saw it back in chapter 6, saying to the sixth angel at a trumpet, Now release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And several people have tried to get interpretations of this, but this is the part I want you to see, verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year, stop, think about that. There are four angels that are sitting at the Euphrates that were prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year. In other words, God says, I knew exactly when it was going to happen. I'm sovereign God that controls all things. You may think you're in control of your world, but let me just tell you, I've been preparing them for this very moment, and look what happened. They're released and now kill a third of mankind. There's this common rhythm, a third, a third, a third, a third. If you go back to the, to the seals, it was a quarter. In other words, we just see that I think the idea of it is just getting amplified. God is seeking to get our attention. And again, the whole thing is he's seeking to bring his will to earth as it is on heaven. And he's rattling the earth saying, do you hear me? Do you see me? The number of mounted troops is twice 10,000 times 10,000. He said, I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses. I, I heard one thing, but now I see in a vision those who rode them, and they were breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind is killed. Here's the three plagues, fire, smoke, sulfur coming out of their mouths for the power of the horses in their mouths and their tails, for their tails are like serpents' heads, and by means of them they wound. In other words, now he's saying, here's your second woe, and it's awful. Now again, don't you just in the back of your head go, just repent, relent, give up, he's God. And I totally would have thought at this moment, like if I were just reading this for the first time, I would have thought, oh, people are going to get this. But have you ever noticed like the worst thing on the planet can happen and still people deny God? It's crazy. Like I'm just imagining if, if I would have seen all these things in my head, I would have thought, this has got to be God. How in the world do you explain these particular things? But in verse 20, it says the rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues, look at this, did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual matter, or their thefts. In other words, they still kept going the way they we're going. What does this mean? I have shared Christ with so many different people. I've walked with so many different people, and I always think to myself, including Todd, by the way, I'm going to talk about myself here in a second, is that don't they get it yet? Why don't they get it? 
I'll even sometimes finish thinking, man, I've just laid out the gospel message the best I can. I've answered all their questions. Everything is there. And yet still on the back end of it, we find what we, again, see all the way back in the book of Exodus is there's this place in which is just the problem with humanity. Our hearts are just hard. I don't get it. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever sat across from somebody sharing the gospel, and you're just crying out to them. You're begging them to get it and to understand it. I don't know if it's a brother or a parent or a kid or someone. You're just sitting across from them going, why don't you get this? Don't you see it? Don't you see God's rocking your world and trying to get your attention? The problem is right here. It's deep in us. The only way it's ever going to change is if God dips in there and touches that heart. Now, on one level, if you can just imagine, people are probably sitting there, especially as Christians, going, what in the world? Okay, God, you've rattled our world. We get it. But they're just seeing all around them this mayhem. This is probably what John is thinking. It's okay, God, you're, you're trying to answer the question of how in the world does your will come to earth as it is on heaven? But that's it? In other words, you're just going to bring your will from the standpoint that now everything is just going to be chaotic? And in this cool moment, he talks to John. See, not only does God sometimes have to absolutely shake our world, but sometimes he just has to remind us for just a second. If you remember last week, an angel came down as the dust was settling. Well, guess what's going to happen right here? I saw another strong or mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. And he had a a little scroll in his hand. Now, here's what you're going to see as a rhythm as you go through all these things. The seals, there were six of them, and everything seems to be crazy, and the dust is everywhere and going crazy, and suddenly God steps in and gives a reprieve between the sixth and the seventh seal. This week, the trumpets are going like crazy, and it's all over the place, and God's bringing down his wrath to bear upon the earth, calling people, whoa, whoa, whoa. In other words, repent of what you're doing, and suddenly between six and seven, he calms down. There's a breath. He breathes. Now, what's he doing? He comes in there, and in verse 3, he says he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, just stop for a second. Okay, just go with me imagine-wise. A giant angel comes down out of heaven and puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. What are you going to do? In this powerful way, and you're going to now start to see this as a rhythm all the way the rest of the way through this, is that God is showing, remember I said I'm going to bring my will to earth as it is on heaven, and this angel that's representative of God comes down. We don't know who this angel is. Some say it's Jesus. There's too many clues that tell us it's not. Maybe it's Gabriel or maybe it's Michael, whoever it is, but he's coming down and he's putting his feet on the earth, or excuse me, on the land and on the sea, establishing that I am the one who's in control of this particular place. I am now the one that's coming to bring God's will to earth as it is on heaven. And he called out, it says, with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. In other words, it was a sound that must be deafening. Now again, here's this guy and he screams it out, this angel, what are you going to do? Well, here's what John did. He said, when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write. What are you saying? 
And all of a sudden he says to him, I heard a voice from saying, no, 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 seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. In other words, that's not what I want you to write. Now people always say to me, what do you suppose the seven thunders are? I don't know. There's these secret things that belong to God that one day we're going to learn about, but this is what he does do. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and here's where we see God's sovereignty, and the earth is what in it, and the sea is what in it, and there would be no more delay. In other words, God is coming back, but in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced by his servant, the prophets. In other words, he's saying to them, what God said he was going to do, I'm here to tell you it's going to be fulfilled. God's will is going to come to earth like it is in heaven. I'm standing here in front of all of you right now saying it is going to happen. Now let me just talk to everybody that's in here. I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus. I'm telling you that Jesus Christ one day is coming back and God's will that is done in heaven will be done on earth. Period. And that's all the angel is saying and I'm standing in front of you today testifying in the same way even though I'm not as big as he is. Verse 8. The voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again. I think it's just God speaking to John. Go take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. Now let me stop for a second. How many of you would go, eh, I don't know. It says, though, I went up to the angel and I told him. I mean, I think I would have been like, hey, could I um, please have the scroll? It says he told him, give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. Okay? And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. It's like, mm, mm, yummy. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. In other words, I got an upset stomach and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. What's he saying? This little scroll would have been similar to the big scroll that Jesus was opening, explaining what's going to happen. He was again calling him, you need to say these words, but the words he says you have to understand on one end are sweet, but on another end are bitter. In order for God to bring his, his will from heaven to make it so on earth, on one level we look at King Jesus coming back and we say, yes, we can't wait for Jesus to come back. But on another level, it's bitter because everything we've read till now is absolutely the horror of humanity as they walk through it. It's bitter. Have you ever been into nurseries? And maybe ours has this. I don't know. So I'm just going to say it and then we'll, I'll get in trouble later. But you know, after, on, on Noah's Ark, when the pictures of it are like everybody coming off all like, hey, we were just on Noah's Ark. It was wonderful. Do you realize what the devastation was after that? I seriously doubt they came off like, hey, what's going on? Because all around them would have been devastation. Now again, this angel that we talked about had a rainbow, and I think it totally signifies what was going on in the book of Genesis, that God is a heart for his people, and he's going to care for his people through this. But when's the last time you just sat and thought that when this thing lands, it's going to be awful? When's the last time you looked at another human being and you cared about them and said, the reason I'm talking with you this, about this right now is there's coming a time when God's wrath is going to be poured out in a way that you can't even imagine. On one level, I am so excited Jesus is coming back. 
I can't wait. I can't wait for the day that we're no longer going to hear about school shootings. And I can't wait for the day that we're going to be able to go to music worship festivals to Jesus without worrying somebody's going to shoot us. I can't wait till there's no more wars. I can't wait till, shoot, there's no more 405. I can't wait until there's all these different things because King Jesus will be in control. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for the day that I'm not worried about my kids going to school. I can't wait for the day that I don't pray over my children wondering what's going to happen to them. I can't wait for the day that I look at people and we have a love and affection for one another that doesn't have anything ill in between us. I can't wait for that day. But in order for heaven to come to earth as far as God's will, this takes place first. And this is why we have the greatest message ever. And I think this is why the angel told John, you've got to tell people. You gotta tell them. We have the greatest message ever. You ever just stopped sometime and went, oh my gosh. We have the greatest message ever, but deep in our pit of our stomach, we know that when we talk to people, we are gonna have to tell them bad news along with the good news. And he says, tell them. And 11, he comes along to them, and not only is he going to rattle their world, and not only is he also going to come alongside of them and remind them, but I think there's a way in which he's now going to reveal to us what he's doing. He says, I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. What in the world are we talking about, John? But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, one of the things that he's doing here is if the first one he's going to rattle the world, then he's going to come along and he's going to remind the world. In this particular case, he's about ready to reveal something about himself that is so cool. Anytime you were asked to measure something in the Old Testament, either number one meant God was going to judge, which could totally fit here. But on the other side of it, whenever somebody was told to measure something, it meant that God owned it. I think he's talking now, and now just follow me along this, of something that God has ownership of. And let me, let me talk to you this way. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when's the last time you thought, he's my dad and he owns me? Now, one level you're like, I ain't owned by nobody. Yes, you are. Paul called you and I slaves. Remember all the way back to Revelation 1? Those people that are truly followers of Jesus are slaves. We're owned by him. And he says now in there when he measures the temple out, I want you to measure it out in such a way that those who worship there are measured. I want to know who's mine. Now, what does that mean? That means that all that are God's will not be missed. If you are one of his and fully one of his, the revelation to them is, is none will be missed. All will be brought into the kingdom like they're supposed to, and nobody will be left out. Now, in this particular case, though, I don't think he's talking about us Gentiles. He talked about three and a half years in regards to months. Now, watch this in verse 3. And I'll grant authority to my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days for three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. Now, who are these two witnesses? Verse 4 gives us a clue. These are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, listen to me. Remember I read Zechariah 2? Well, in Zechariah 3 and 4, it tells the story of how God is going to redeem not the Gentiles, but the people of Israel. In other words, he's saying, there are, I'm still not done with my particular people, and I'm going to go get them, and I'm going to reach out to the Jewish people, and there's going to come a point in which my people will finally understand who Jesus Christ truly is. 
The two people that happened to be in this case in Zechariah 3 and 4 were a guy named Zerubbabel, don't ever call your son that, and another guy named Joshua, not the guy who fought the battle of Jericho, but a different guy. Now some people think because of verse 5 is that if anybody would harm them, now watch this, fire pours out of their mouth. Anybody else go, whoo? I mean, can you imagine if you came up to me today and you're like, you know, hey, Todd, you're a stupid head. And I went, bah! <laughs> Again, God's revealing something. I'm trying to get your attention. It consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he do- they are doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky. This is why some people think maybe it's Elijah, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague. This is why people think maybe it's Elijah and Moses. We don't know. As often as they desire. So here's all these people hearing this message to the Jews. And they're watching these guys do that. And then up comes a guy we're going to talk about called the beast that we'll talk about next week. It says, when they had finished their testimony, when they had publicly revealed, when they had shared who this God was, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. We can kind of see out of there. Their Lord probably refers to, again, Jesus as Messiah. The Jewish people was crucified, probably refers to Jerusalem. And for three and a half days from the peoples and the tribes and the language and the nations, they'll guise at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, look at this, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange prayer. It's like Christmas time after they die. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Whoa! Now, if you're a Christian, you're probably going again, God, I thought we were talking about how your will is brought from from heaven to earth. I thought we were going to talk about how this was going to take place. And God is telling them this, that yes, it is going to be something that he's going to rattle their world. He is going to call them to remind. But I'll tell you what, he is not going to do it, though, until gospel is proclaimed, not only in the end times, if you're someone who believes it's going to happen in the future, but right now, the message of the gospel always has to be talked and proclaimed. And then in this, every time that we think things are at their lowest that we don't know what God's going to do, he reminds us in the same way Jesus Christ died on a cross and was raised three and a half days later. Watch what happened to them. And after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. Now, whoa. Watch this. And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Sure. Great fear. I think it was more like, "Ah," right? I mean, not like, hey, it was fear. Then they turn, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, now catch this, come up here. What? First of all, those guys, why are they walking around? Second of all, where did the voice come from? Third of all, and they went up to heaven with a cloud and their enemies watched them. Okay, how many would love to see this scene right now? Whoa. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Now, just stop for a second. Remember I told you I was going to answer the question, how did God's will come from heaven to earth? Watch. And the rest were terrified. Look at this. And they gave glory to God in heaven. There's no more rejection here. 
John comes along and says, the second woe is past, but there's still one more to come. Now in this moment, God rattles the world. He reminds the world. He reveals to the world. The world repents. But eventually, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. So to answer the question, how does God bring his will from heaven to earth? There it is. Everything is tied up in that statement. There will come a day finally after all this takes place. And this is the process whereby which it now is accomplished. And after that, the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God, they'll fall on their faces and worship God saying, we give thanks to you, O Lord Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged for rewarding your servants, the prophets, the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great for destroying the destroyers of the earth. In other words, they're telling Jesus, you win. Now, let me just tell all of you in here, here's the phenomenal news about this. And I've said this before, King Jesus wins. You with me? King Jesus is going to win. But there's a process that's going to take place that I believe we're still called to, be, to, to call people to repent from because they do not want to go through this. Now, here's what we need to kind of throw up there. This is what I talked about. In all of our lives, God is not afraid to rattle us. He's not afraid to remind us. He's not afraid to reveal to us. We then are called to repent of our action and if we're ever not only going to see his will on earth as it is in heaven, I have to sometimes walk through this process in order for Jesus to be Lord of this life. I think there's some of you out there right now that you know that God is rattling you, isn't he? He's rattling you, and I think this week, even as a nation, whenever we see this, the devastation when humanity goes ahead and does what they want to do, I think it's God's beautiful way of calling out to us and crying out to us, I am king, I am Lord, and when humanity gets their way, this is what happens. I am the good God who is going to reign forever, and he's calling and beckoning out to us. I think everything that we walk through is this beckoning of God. He then reminds us of who he is at different points as Christians. He reveals to us who he is. But I think then there's some of us in this room, and I've had to do this all week long. I've had to look at my life, and I've had to ask honest questions. Where is God seeking to rattle me? And where do I need to seek repentance and turn the other way? Not so that I can see just some future victory of Jesus, because I need to see victory in my life right now. I want to see his good reign brought to bear in me right now. And my greatest fear in preaching to a lot of us in here is that there's people that are going to walk out of here saying, that was for somebody else, not for me. And I promise you, God, if he needs to, will rattle you to get your attention because there's nothing more than God wants than for you to realize who he is because in Revelation eleven nineteen, then God's temple in heaven was opened up. And look at this, the ark of his covenant has been seen within his temple. The ark means relationship. God is going to do everything in his power to remove those things that hinder relationship, not only on the cosmic level, but on a personal level. So let me ask you a question right now. Today, is God seeking to get your attention? If he is, repent. Come to him. 
If you're somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I'm here to tell you that we have a God that even into the very end, he's going to be crying out that people repent. There's an answer in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer to the question of how in the world does God bring his will to earth? He did it through his son. He continues to do it. And one day he is coming back to reign, but now he's calling out to people to repent. Quit shaking your fist at him and bend the knee to him now because you don't want to bend it later. For the rest of us that know him in here, I think he rattles our world like a good dad every once in a while, doesn't he? I think there's some of us in here that are harboring sin that we have got to get rid of. I look around a room this size, and I know there is. Some of you just haven't walked with God like you're supposed to. You need to repent of that. Some of you are involved in sin that just has you trapped, and you think, I can't get out of it. That's a lie. Some of you are harboring anger and bitterness that you've been dealing with for years. There's just different things in this room. And I'm here to tell you, our God is calling us to repent. And the beauty of our God, when we repent, he forgives. I don't care what it is that you're going through. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the band up. If any of you in this room need prayer today, I'll be up here. I know there'll be other elders up here. If you need to talk to somebody about how it is that I walk through this process to repentance so that I truly can have God's good reign in my life, we would love to talk to you. If you're somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ today, again, I would love to talk to you. But for the rest of us, we could. Let's stand. We've got one song left to sing. And so I'll turn it over to Billy to, to lead us through that.